Pod Lang Crunchy. It's the weekend and plenty to hear from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And all they were doing was walking home. They were just walking home after a night out. It just, it just is truly so unfair. But I'll echo what my husband said yesterday. Be kind to each other. Look after each other. Don't have hate in your hearts. Say prayers for my baby girl. The inflatable toys are a big no-no. If you have them, leave them at home. Don't bring them to the beach this summer. The lifeguards are killed telling people to take them out of the water. I I know people actually with their own homemade lunches. If if they're continually being nicked, um, they've gone to the trouble of putting laxatives in them. What? (laughs) And we'll start in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne. Desperately sad, the families of the victims of stabbing in Nottingham, including Grace O'Malley Kumar's mother and brother, speaking at a vigil in their memory. Now, a vigil was held in Nottingham's Old Market Square yesterday, where the families of Grace O'Malley Kumar, age 19, Barnaby Webber, age 19 also, and Ian Coates, who was 65, addressed the crowd that gathered in support. The three were stabbed to death in Tuesday's early morning attacks. On Wednesday, Sanjoy Kumar and David Webber spoke in Nottingham University about their children, Grace and Barnaby. And then yesterday, the city rallied around the three families with a minute's silence. Just before that silence, people were urged to talk to each other, to show their solidarity and their sense of community. Well, Grace O'Malley Kumar's mother, Sinead, spoke about her daughter. Hello, Nottingham. Thank you for being here. Thank you for showing your love for our babies. Be patient with us. We we all want to say a little something. But what I want to say is that my beautiful baby girl, she wasn't just beautiful on the outside. You must have seen her pictures across the media. She was so beautiful on the inside. She was a treasured and adored child. She wanted very few things in life. She wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to play hockey with her pals. She wanted to have fun, because that's what all students want. They want to enjoy themselves. And all they were doing was walking home. They were just walking home after a night out. And like Emma says, Emma Weber says, this person must face justice. It just, it just is truly so unfair. I'll echo what my husband said yesterday. Be kind to each other. Look after each other. Don't have hate in your hearts. Say prayers for my baby girl. I can't say any more, but she did love Nottingham. It's almost unbearable, isn't it? Um, Grace's younger brother, James, spoke as well at that event. He was on the podium. Here's what he said. As Grace's younger brother... I just want to thank everyone here for coming to remember the lost lives of our loved ones, Barney, Grace and Ian, and my family, especially for flying over, means the most. Grace wasn't only just a sister to me, she was a best friend of mine, my mother, my father, all her friends, and all her family. And if there's only one message that comes out of this, I urge you all to cherish every moment you spend with your loved ones as you just never know when it will end. Thank you. James, Grace O'Malley Kumar's brother speaking at a vigil in Nottingham from Today with Claire Byrne. 
And on the live line in the afternoon, John called Cullumamungoin about a shock he got when climate change campaigners targeted his car. John, you came out of the house on Tuesday night. What did you see in your driveway? Uh, to, to to our horror, both myself and my daughter uh, discovered that uh, two tyres on each of the vehicles uh, were deflated to, to such an extent that the car couldn't move really. Um, and then discovered that some neighbours also had the same issue. And they had left, whoever these people are, left uh, a piece of paper on the windscreen suggesting that they are a group called tyre extinguishers and that, that people who drive um, SUVs or anything close to an SUV is uh, not uh, eco-friendly, etc., and they're gas guzzlers, etc., and that's why they had let the air out of your tyres. Yeah, it's the first occasion that I, that we have come across uh, of uh, these people, um, and I, I just wanted to highlight it. And I'm, I'm hoping that other people who are listening uh, can also um, come forward um, because this needs to be addressed and addressed very quickly because it can get at hand. I did actually Google it, and um, I see that it's happening all over Europe. Now. You you were obviously on on your way out. You saw the car. Was it a, was it bright t- time of the night? Was it immediately obvious to you that your tires were flat? Um, it was my daughter who noticed it first, and, and then she and then a neighbour knocked on the door and, and said, "Look what's happened to your tires because it was happened to us." So it was like eight eight thirty in the morning. Um, so it's not just the fact that, that it was just the air that was let out. It, it, the inconvenience for everything behind behind this. Um, caused a lot of problems and grief for people if you are going to work and you have to, and where, to be there. Where uh, were you off to on Wednesday morning at at 8.30 when you were leaving the house? Did you have a junior cert candidate in the house or were you give, just giving a lift to no. your daughter? And, and, and no, my daughter is, is living at home. She's she's working in a, in a, in a, in a good, a good uh, employment job and um, I had also an office to go to. Um, so both of us um, were delayed by over an hour as you can imagine, trying to sort this thing out. Just read out the uh, note that was left on John's car. It says, Attention, your gas guzzler kills. We have inflated one or more of your tyres. You'll be angry, but don't take it personally. It's not you, it's your car. We did this because driving around urban areas in your massive vehicle has huge consequences for others. Car companies try to convince us that we need massive cars, but SUVs and 4x4s are a disaster for our climate. SUVs are the second largest cause of the global rise in carbon dioxide emissions over the past decades, more than the entire aviation industry. The world is facing a climate emergency, according to the UN. Millions of people are already dying from climate change-related causes, drought, hurricanes, floods, forced migration, starvation. And so far, the impacts on you have probably been minimal. We need to take emergency action to reduce emissions immediately. We're taking actions onto our own hands because our governments and politicians will not. Even if you don't care about the impacts on people far away from you, there's also consequences for your neighbours. SUVs cause more pollution than smaller cars. SUVs are more likely to kill people than normal cars in collisions. Psychological studies show, and we won't, we don't, don't know what study that that's referring to, so we won't won't go into that. But anyway, John, that was the tenor of I just was reading out the note that was left yeah. uh, beside the tire and said that's why we've taken this action. You will have no difficulty getting around without your gas goggles or with walking, cycling, or public transport. And right. it's signed the tire extinguishers. 
tireextinguishers.com. Where was the note left on your car? And what, what kind of a car is it as a matter of interest? It, um, by identifying my car, it can identify where I am and where I live. Okay. So right. it, it, it's a 1.2 engine. That's all I can tell you. And therefore, it's not, I know I know that it's not what, what they would term a gas guzzler. Um, and my daughter's car is a 1.5. So it's not what they believe to be gas guzzlers, which I know those cars are talking about. But besides all of that, we, particularly our family and our, our friends, we understand everything to do with climate change and the environment. But this attack, which it is an attack, it's an infringement. It's everything to do. They don't give you choice. They don't. They don't wish to give you choice. Nothing. And here's the other thing too. If, if for example, there was an emergency that morning, and we had to say go to a doctor, go to a hospital, or whatever, and you come out and those tires are deflated because of these nut bags. Well, that's John there. Then Colm had C. O'Connor in Bonn in Germany on the line. The form of action that the tyre extinguishers take, just for the record, you're not a member of the tyre extinguishers, but you can see a certain merit in their methods, can you? It's not so much the action that I'm for or against, so much as I'm dismissing it because, for example, um, the right to decide if I drive a car or not is really missing the broader context of the climate crisis, which is that at some point in the very near future, we do need to be transitioning away from individual-based um, forms of transport to to public transport, to cycling, to walking, to cities that are designed around facilitating those things above facilitating cars, because cars are killing people. Um, I know from... Uh, from what's been reported, that the the tire extinguishers do, at, at least um, they would say that they focus primarily on, on SUVs. And I know that the International Energy Agency last year reported that if SUVs had their own country, they would have been in the top 10 emitters. So, yes, okay, obviously, these actions are distressing to the people that they are affecting, that they, they are inconveniencing people. But that is often what direct action does and has to do in order to raise awareness, in order to get people to understand how big of a problem this is. And frankly, being delayed an hour or so going to work while it is a problem, of course, for that person, nothing compared to the inconvenience that the climate crisis will cause and is already causing. So... Sorry, just yeah, 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 John, John, go, uh, go, go on there. Yeah, is, is a medical a medical emergency an inconvenience? For example, if somebody had fallen down the stairs and needed a car to bring that person to hospital, if a child got sick and needed to go to the hospital, is that an inconvenience? This See? is ridiculous. Yes. This is outrageous. <laughs> All right. What if the world was made of cheese? That didn't happen. You know, like that yeah. could happen under there, there any There are ways. There are ways and means to do this, but not attacking somebody's house or household or their motor vehicle is not the answer. It was non-violent direct action, and I agree that it was distressing for you, and I am sorry that that happened, but we do need to raise awareness about how these cars are... Well, there must be some other way of doing this. And I would back it. John, I'm going to say, just, just, let, just, just, just let's see, see in there. So we, we'll take, take a one sure. at a time because, see, your, your line is a little bit shaky. So we, we do want to be here, everybody. We can make our points. We have the time. We have okay. the time to have okay. the discussion. See, you think okay. that, you know, direct action will cause distress, but in the interest of making the broader point, that's just collateral damage, is it? No, my point is, but okay. I am here in Bonn. I have been in, here in Bonn for the um, 
and biannual UN climate conference, right, where we have been hearing from people from the global south who are already experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis. And yes, inconveniences or medical emergencies or the things that you are describing that could theoretically have happened because you didn't have access to your car for that hour are terrible, would have been terrible. But there are people who, because of the emissions of cars like ours, of lifestyles like ours in Ireland, cannot take their their children to the hospital because the roads are flooded, because the roads are no longer there. People are dying of heat stroke. People are dying of floods. People are dying of diseases that should be preventable. People don't have access to medical care because of the climate crisis, because of pollution that comes from cars like those. So, yes, I know that it is an issue when people are directly impacted by direct action, but unfortunately, people are not listening. And so I understand when climate justice activists have to have to take direct action to, to to make people aware of this because before people were doing this no one was calling me to speak on the radio about the impacts of SUVs they weren't so there has been an impact there well that's C O'Connor from the live line with Colm O'Mungoin And on today with Claire Byrne, when an office faux pas becomes toxic behaviour. Dirty cups left in the sink, smelly lunch at the desk or someone just gawking at your computer screen when they really shouldn't be. They're fairly familiar scenarios in the workplace, but can those repeated incidents of irritating behaviour cause lasting damage? And to talk more about this, I'm joined in the studio by barrister and journalist Aileen Hickey and Patricia Murray, who's a work psychologist with the Health and Safety Authority. You're both welcome. Thank you for being here. So... Aileen, often the the, um, easiest part of a job is actually the work. It's all the other stuff that we're talking about that can be really tricky, can't it? 100%. I mean, I've worked in various workplaces uh, over the last 30 years and I've come across various behaviours that are kind of gobsmacking. I mean, I suppose the most obvious one, uh, and you just touched on it there, is kind of the... um, the the, the, the the stealing, for want of a better word, of lunches or drinks or anything from the communal work fridge or the communal work kitchen. So I've been in practically every workplace I've ever worked in, actually, there's been an issue at some stage with people taking other people's lunches or other people's milk or other people's biscuits or whatever it is. And people actually get very territorial. Yeah. About their what they bring to work. And actually, I understand it because, you know, people spend a lot of time, I think, maybe in the evening making whatever they're going to bring into work the following day. I mean, I even see my own kids at it. So they want if, if they've made something or and if they put together a little bag of whatever they're going to be eating the following day, they want it. So I've, and I, I think that's kind of, very strange that someone would go and steal somebody else's homemade lunch. Well, well so do I. But but it definitely it happens. happens. Yeah. Uh, and I think particularly, you know, with things like drinks or milks or things like that. So I've seen uh, in workplaces, you know, people regularly, you know, going to the fridge and taking other people's milk. Now, that's fine, if, I think, if it's a general milk. But I've seen, you know, I think a lot of people these days are, you know, they drink almond milk or coconut milk or oat milk or whatever they're going drinking. So uh, it, recently, only a few years ago, um, I was in, I worked in a particular workplace and uh, one of my colleagues, uh, she used almond milk and it kept going missing. And uh, she started, I think, I think this was brilliant, but she started labelling it as breast milk. Well, that kept and people <laughs> away. Probably kept people away, I say. Maybe not definitely. <laughs> well, it definitely stopped it. I mean, and, it, and if it hadn't, it would have been very scary. I've also seen people, and this isn't an urban myth, I've seen people, I, I know people actually, who have put, have gone to the trouble of, with their own homemade lunches, putting, if, if they're continually being nicked, um, they've gone to the trouble of putting laxatives in them. What? And, <laughs> and they 
been keeping an eye on uh, whoever they they might have their whoever they they think is doing it to see you know what bathroom visits they're they're, they're making. It's true, or chilies or things like. Look, people, as I say, can get very territorial, and, and they can do they can do, they can do drastic things. I actually, and I will say, the worst work place behaviour that I've ever seen is it was around the time the smoking ban was brought in and I worked in a particular work environment uh, and obviously the smoking ban in workplaces was you know across the board um, and I, this particular workplace um, it, you know the, the, the people who worked there were they were a little bit older and they were mainly male and they were very uh, they stuck to their guns and diehards absolute diehards so I shared a desk with this particular man who was maybe 20 or 30 years older than me and he was a heavy smoker so he continued to smoke in the workplace despite not being supposed to. Now, there was no ashtrays or anything. So what he would do is we had a shared desk and a shared drawer and he would, you know, smoke his fag and then he would literally uh, line up all the fag butts in the drawer like dead soldiers for us to share. And that was your yeah, drawer as yeah, well. that was my drawer. Aileen there. Then work psychologist Patricia Murray gave her take on toxic office behaviour. Patricia, th- these stories can be funny and we've had a good laugh. But you mm-hmm. see, when we got to the laxatives and the chilies <laughs> in the lunch, you can see how it's veering into toxic and very problematic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm shocked at some of those stories, I have to say, Aileen. And they don't, they haven't come across my desk, those kind of stories, to be honest with you. But there are loads of small toxic behaviours people do that other people find irritating, for sure. And obviously, at the Health and Safety Authority, we're not there to go in and regulate for behaviours because that's just way too big brotherish. But we do take cognizance of the fact that small behaviours irritate people and irritated people what do they do they irritate other people and then they become maybe anti in establishment way and they engage in other behaviours that can irritate a different person so they can all have safety impacts because mm-hmm. if the communication between people breaks down because you don't like them or they did what you're saying there Aileen and you, you avoid those people you maybe you need to communicate with them for a work related issue so it can lead to safety issues and it can also lead to bullying kind of behaviours because they can escalate, somebody else sees it, somebody else joins in, then it becomes more strategic and less of a joke. And the big the phrase, I suppose, that would be better avoided is, ah, I was only messing. Because mm-hmm. ah, I was only messing to you might mean not messing to the other person. Mm-hmm. So while people know and they're aware of good and bad behaviours, do they understand the reason why they're good and bad behaviours? Because it hurts another person, it offends them, mm-hmm. it undermines them. Mm-hmm. And then do they practice good behaviour? So it's not really I, just about awareness. I, it's just really tricky, though, because and I have Siobhan texting us here saying that, you know, she has somebody who brings in garlic sandwiches. Mm. Now, can uh, every day garlic <laughs> on the sandwich. So you can imagine what's happening in the afternoon with the smell and the breath and all. Mm. But is there anything Siobhan can do about that? Well, in terms of health and safety regulations, there there is no regulation yeah. to, to, to look at that, no. But I would say as a psychologist, which obviously is my background and I'm a psychologist, and I would say, can you find a way to say to the person so that they understand what you're saying to them? If you say to somebody, you shouldn't be bringing in garlic bread, I hate that you do it. You know, you might get a bad reaction. Whereas if you first of all find out, is there a policy about eating at the desk in the workplace? Is there a genuine policy? Then we can pass it over to HR and they can send a reminder out. Yeah. Or else you say to the person, I have an, I really have an issue with the smell. Would you mind? Because it makes me feel nauseous. Is there anything we can do? I mean, Aileen has no problem that. saying that. Cause you, you I have, have absolutely pro- no problem saying that. I was only dying to jump in there because I have a particular issue with tuna. I actually, I just, I gag at the smell of tuna. Even the word tuna kind of turns my stomach. Um, so any workplace that I've ever mm. been in, I would say, 
more or less from the outset, you know, I, I'm not sure how you all feel about tuna here, but please don't bring in your tuna sandwiches or tuna in your lunch boxes mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it's just, I suppose, about being respectful to me because I mm-hmm. literally, I mean, I, I'm not allergic to it and, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, mm. to get, you know, some sort of an anaphylactic attack or anything, but I literally gag and I just can't stand the smell of it. So, you know, and people have... I, I've never had an issue since once I've said it. You see, I think that the, the thing here is, and this goes across all behaviours, because let's let's face it, are there irritating people out there or are they just people who are irritated a lot? There's probably yeah. both. Mm-hmm. So in between, yeah. we're trying to mitigate yeah. between being totally autocratic, which you don't want to do in yeah. an organisation, and giving people options. One of the things to do is try and explain to people yeah. why... It's a, why you find it difficult. Yeah. And really, most people are really glad to be told that. And then they'll go, they'll go out of their way. Patricia Murray and Aileen Hickey on Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tupperty show, one of the Irish kings of the West End, Killian Donnelly. Killian Donnelly, welcome home. Welcome back and welcome to our studio. Good Thank to see you. Thank you so much. It's good to see you, Ryan. You, uh, you're looking very cash and summery. So I, you did cycle in in the end. I wasn't <laughs> I joking. Did I cycle in. I'm loving all the new cycle lanes that they're building in and Dublin. I think that it, did it kick off during COVID? They started encouraging people to get back on their bikes and I things like that. I think it did. I used to cycle to Phantom over in London and it would take me about 45 minutes to an hour. So when I was over here, I was like, right, I really want to start cycling again. And there's new cycle lanes. So I got from Artane all the way to here in about 35 minutes. Not bad going. Yeah, really good. Really love it. Safe? Uh, safe, really That's safe. That's the key. Yeah, um, I, I noticed the same cyclists. So we're doing all the nods. Yeah. Morning, how yes. are you? We're getting all that. So I love it. I am... I, I, I don't wear the gear if whenever I'm on the yeah, I do, do wear the gear. Yeah, I do the cycle shorts, so which has padding in the bum. Okay. So that, that's to all you cyclists out there, get the padding in the bum because it really helps on some of the roads. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's great. It's I won't great be wearing for... those because I think the country has suffered enough. But I, but I appreciate that you're going to do that. And, and uh, you know, as I said, <laughs> could you imagine? <laughs> the country just resigns. <laughs> um, OK, let's talk about yeah, you and, and life, broadly speaking, because... Um, you, when you said that you, you cycled to Phantom, it wasn't Phantom FM. You were talking, of no. course, about your, your role in London. We'll get there in a second. I want to talk about your out-of-tune piano uh, when you were a kid yeah. <laughs> uh, in the front room with, with half a guitar. It's, a, it's amazing because like, for books, I always say you, take, you should take the Hansel and Gretel approach to books for kids. Just leave them locking, knocking around the place yeah. and they'll trip over them and they'll go, what's this, as opposed to forcing them down. The Equally with you, you had this piano and a guitar. Talk to me about that room and, and the guitar and everything Yeah, else. well, we were never really told to stop singing in our house. If you were humming a tune or anything, it was always encouraged and my mum would always go for the, the, the harmony above, nice. be it anything. But uh, we had a front room which had a out-of-tune piano and one guitar and we called it the music room. So you you were just allowed to sing out and do anything. My father sang, my mother sang, my brother and sister sang. And I think I think in our village of Clemesson, everyone thought at Christmas time, we were like the Von Trapps around <laughs> Christmas, all gathered around the piano. But we loved a session. We loved a sing song. And yeah, that's where my love for it grew. And yes. then I discover musicals through my dad, through my mom. And that was that was really where I started building singing musicals, trying to learn them on the piano, trying to learn six chords on the piano, trying to match that to a guitar. And I just got lost yes. in that room for hours and hours and hours singing, blasting music. We, we share a few things in common. One of them is the importance of Colin Wilkinson yeah. to, to our dads, actually, yeah. because we, in, in my house, there was this the vinyl of the, what is it, uh, the, show, the, the show tunes. It was a lovely, greatest um, uh, bits of the... Uh, 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 Stage Heroes. Stage Heroes. That's the one. 
Uh, amazing uh, yeah. selection of songs. And you got that. Or now I'm talking vinyl, but you had it on CD. I, I had it on CD. I'd always sort of slagged my dad about the people he'd listen to and the voices he'd hear. Yeah. And now I love them. The John Denvers and the Vince Gills. And he goes, right, you want a voice? Here's a voice. And he handed me Colin Wilkinson, Stage Heroes. And he just said to me, track seven. That's and it. And he walked away. And track seven was Bring Him Home. So that's the. F- I remember it, 11 years old, hearing that voice. Yeah. And I played it over and over and over and over. And it was just the beginning for me. It just changed everything where I went, what is this song? What yeah. What is it in? My mom would say, that's a show called Les Miserables. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I was like learning all about it. And it wasn't until... I got into the show, yeah. Les Mis, in about 2007 that I went to see the show before I got into rehearsals, like yeah. a week before. And then you see where Bring Him Home is and in the that arc. show. Yeah. And the arc and how it exists in the character. And yeah, I'd only heard it at sing songs at sessions at four o'clock in the morning, people it's singing it. It's a very hard song to sing, I suspect. And because and it covers a multitude of ranges and it begins off, you know, when it begins off that lovely music at the beginning, yeah. that gentle... Um, so the beautiful story that yeah. I have is I did Valjean in the West End and it was like the 32nd year. This is the head, the this lead, is lead role in Les Mis, Jean Valjean. Val, Jean Valjean yeah. in the 32nd year, written by Claude-Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil and they came to the birthday. <gasps> so we all go front of house and we all are given champagne and hugs and pictures and Claude-Michel comes up to me and he goes, great show, well done Killian." And I go, look, I'll probably never get this opportunity. Can you tell me a wonderful Colin Wilkinson story? He's my hero. And he goes, yep, love telling this story go of on. how we created Bring Him Home for that man. And I, we were performing in the Barbican. We were performing Les Mis in the Barbican before it went to the palace. And we had seven weeks there and I hadn't written Bring Him Home. And Cameron McIntosh was coming up to me going, have you got the 11 o'clock number for our star, for our hero Valjean? He goes, I have it. I hadn't got it. I walked by Colin Wilkinson's dressing room and he was singing quietly The Phantom of the Opera because yeah. he was learning the demos for The Phantom of the Opera because he was going to be performing that workshop for Andrew Lloyd Webber. So his voice was The Phantom very quietly. And he said, I haven't heard that part of Colm's voice. I'll write a song. And he wrote Bring Him Home in G, I think. And Colm said, bring it up. And he brought it up a key, bring it up, no. brought it up another key and it went up to A. And Killian spoke about meeting his hero, Colm Wilkinson. I was doing the 25th concert of Les Miserables at the O2 and Colm walked in in front of 600 actors and we all gave him a big round of applause yeah. and I was just amongst them sort of going, he's Irish, he's one of me. Yeah. I should go up and say hello to him. And he was leaning on a staircase backstage with a bottle of water and just went, Colm, hi, I'm Killian. I'm from Ireland and he gave me a big hug Did he? and he went, how are you getting on? Tell me everything. And it was just, it was just, he was so proud and yet never knew me, but like to get into the show. But isn't it amazing that, so from Colm to yourself, that you should become the kind of kings of the West End of these high end, high powered performances. The two Irish guys, you know, flying the flag. I always say that about you, flying yeah. the flag proudly in, in the West End. It is it is extraordinary for it, all the talent that they have in, in Britain and what have you, or around the world, that you guys landed these these um, iconic roles. I will never forget when I auditioned for Valjean and Cameron McIntosh was in the auditorium and I was on the stage and I sung a song and then he said, the Irish belong in, West, in Les Miserables. There's something in the water. Is that right? Yeah, and I just remember it really stuck with me and there's been many... Irish people in Les Miserables but um, it all it all it's amazing where one of the greatest musical theatre songs ever written was written for an Irishman who was who was in his dressing room 
working on another musical yeah. when the writers heard a, heard a register and yeah. said, I need to go there. Wow. It's amazing. That is amazing. Um, well, let's talk about Les Mis for a second because when you're in that, what is that, is that the role you want to play, uh, Jean Valjean? Yeah, Jean Valjean. You don't want to be Javert sometimes, the baddie. You kind of do. Yeah, it's that's a, thing. Some, a lot of fun playing a baddie sometimes. You kind of do because when you're in the show, to talk to people about it, yes, you want to be Valjean, but when you're in the show... Valjean is on for an hour and 46 of a three hour show where Javert is on for something like 27 minutes. Yeah, as most baddies generally as are. Most baddies yeah, are. They don't get you, as much scene. And you, uh, when you're offered Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, you want to be Judas. It's always you want to be the other one. Let's go there. Because uh, again, I'm showing my, my kind of uh, albums in the, in the home collection. And yeah. one of them was Jesus Christ Superstar. And um, the original cast, uh, Ted Neely yeah. and, uh, and that sort of thing. But... That the, the the opening bars of Heaven on My Mind is that my mind is clear now. And isn't it but it's just that, that that thing and then when he starts going my mind is clear and that and that interpretation And then he gets to the Jesus the scream where yeah. it's pitched it's not singing Jesus. it's a scream yeah. it's a roar and that goes into full waka waka you started to believe the thing they say of you and it's great fun though it's funky soundtrack regardless of your religion or lack of um, it's just fun. Um, so do, it, you haven't have you played any of those roles? Yet? No, yeah. I was in a, an amateur production of yeah. it. Where and who'd they, you play there? I got I, everyone. I, I was told I played the thirteenth apostle <laughs> because they needed men for the show, and we all got the text, and too many of us showed up. So I was told, Killian, don't worry, you'll be in it. And yeah. I was like the waiter at the Last Supper, just dropping things down and yeah, coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it was that. It was that moment where you hear that score, yeah. something hits you. And it was written as an album, as a concept album. Yeah, it, it was never like written it. for a musical. Was it not? No. And then someone approached Andrew Lloyd Webber and said, this is a musical. We can do something with yeah. this. And it's just become the phenomenon that it yeah. is. And these, these. It's dark. It, it's dark. Well, I think it's so dark. When he's talking to God and he said to his father, you know, I only want to say if there is a way, take this cup away from me because yeah. I don't want to taste this poison. Like it's, it's that sort of intensity. It's quite poetic. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I've seen it. It was one of the first shows that I saw on the Amdram circuit in my uh, home musical society. And it was one of those things where it's like, what? what is this? Yeah. When you're 11 or 12 and you're seeing these, you're going, this is a thing? Yeah. Musicals? What are these? You, you also touched on something there, Killian, which was um, the shortage of men in Amdram and musical mm. productions. Like if you were a man looking for a partner, a female partner. At get least. into musicals. Get into musicals. Get into musicals, it, lads. It, it, I, this comes yeah. up again. Stop <laughs> playing football. Get into musicals. <laughs> if you're lonely, don't, don't go on the... You don't have to dance. You don't have to sing. You don't need a nap. No, you don't. You don't <laughs> need a nap. Musicals should recruit men by saying that. You don't need a nap. Just, 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 just get up. into musicals. Um, let's talk about your, your wife, Louise, because you met her at one point and it wasn't the right point and yeah. then things changed. So what was that first point? Our, our, that first point was Louise was already in London doing the, the circuit. She yeah. was in We Will Rock You and Singing in the Rain. And I saw her in We Will Rock You, but we had mutual friends and never had met. Mm-hmm. So sort of mutual friends put us in contact through like Facebook or something. And, oh, can I come and see your show? Can I come and see your show? And she denies this, but I asked her out over... The 15 years, I asked her out about three times. Yeah. But she would go, absolutely, I'll meet you for a coffee. But just so you know, I am with someone. So she denied you three. This is biblical Den- now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. Here we go, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> denied me three times. <laughs> right? So I'm currently writing the musical. <laughs> um, and then it took me to get Val John in the UK and Ireland tour there in 2018. Yeah. 
and we went to Dublin for six weeks across Christmas. God, the things people will do for love. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. Louise was in Dublin at the time, so she came to see me. And then a mute, that same mutual friend said, look, just so you know, Louise is now single. I went, right, OK. Yeah. So I gave the performance of my life and I went up to her afterwards and she was like, well done. And she'll always play it cool. Yeah. And I was like, can we go for a coffee? Can we just, so the rest is history. And I you had been Valjean. In, uh, uh, yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. So if you, so I, in so order to get my wedding, wife, <laughs> you know, I had to get Valjean in Les <laughs> So lads, join musicals. Join musicals. <laughs> and Ryan asked Killian about playing the same role eight performances a week. Tell me how you maintain an interest in the same songs and notes day in, day out, sometimes twice daily um, without wanting to rip the mask off and run to McDonald's and just order a Happy Meal. Excellent question. And you're, it's the people you work with. Every show has a three month honeymoon period. OK, I think. interesting. And yeah. then when you get at, when you get into that fourth month, you're like, OK, now I'm just putting on the clothes. And I think I've said to you before, there have been times that I've been singing Bring Them Home on the West End, thinking of when's the Tesco shop arriving? <laughs> no. Is it three or four? It's terrible when you're, dis- you just, you're, you're, yeah, you're, your you're, you're not engaged. Yes. Yeah. But understudies and swings that are in the show. Now, what are swings? Well, I started as a swing in Les Mis and my job wasn't you're going to play this one role for the next 12 months. It was you're going to cover these 10 roles for the next 12 months. So I had 10 roles to learn, 10 roles to play. Yeah. And when so, in a 12 month contract, there's four weeks holidays, there's sick days. So people will be off and you would be playing different roles once a week, you'd probably go through about three or four roles. So mm-hmm. you learnt on the job. It was the best training I could have ever asked for. Okay. So when you're Phantom, you've got four different alternate Christines to, to work with. So a Chris, your Christine Daae could be sick and then the first cover goes on or the second cover. And what does that do to your performance? It or? changes the entire show wow. okay. because I'll say... There are some actors who go, this is my, uh, this is how I do it and you've got to work around me. Where I go, look, I know the show and I know my track of where I have to go. Let's do your show. So I'm able to guide you if you're, if you're an understudy and you've never been on before. Uh, I can I can help you in scenes. I, it, the one thing was helping into the boat because the the actor would go off stage right and I go no we got to get in the boat now. <laughs> so it's like oh the boat the boat the boat don't forget the Can't boat. Can't do Phantom without the boat. <laughs> okay. So, so we'd um, yeah. So it changes the entire show. Yeah. And that that for me is 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 like suddenly 12 months go by and it's done. After six months is when they're sort of saying, do you want to stay for another year? Yeah. So then you realise that we already halfway through yeah. and coming back to Phantom, it was similar to Les Mis. You're always doing things with Phantom. You're three months in and suddenly they go, so you're now singing at the Queen's Jubilee. Oh, and I see. So before you know what you're, before you're doing, you know you're, spot, you're, spot. you're So you're off next Saturday and you have to go down to Buckingham Palace for a dress rehearsal and then you're on the Sunday and... All those things happen because it's the phantom in the phantom yeah. of the opera. When you're a Val John in Lame Is, someone like you, of course, will know who I'm talking about. But a lot of the general public will go, Oh, I've heard of Lame Is and yeah. Val John. Hugh Jackman is it? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. But when you say I'm phantom, you the can't. Phantom, yeah, it's, it's, it's a culture it's a, icon. And yeah. so they know immediately. So he's everywhere. They want him to open everything. Uh, <laughs> the Tesco. <He's> <laughs> the Tesco's you were thinking about. I must do that opening of Tesco's next week. Um, the, the mask, the iconic mask that Phantom wears. But before I ask you where it's gone, um, <laughs> putting it on for the first time, for yeah. example, was that a buzz? Yes, absolutely. There's a guy... Especially on the West End, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they make six masks for you. And what used to happen was you went to... I've forgotten his name, but you used to go to 
uh, the makeup artist who did The Elephant Man used wow. to go to his house for the weekend and he'd pour the mould over you and you'd have straws out your nose and your yes. mouth. Now it's all done with a laptop and they fire a, a, a light into your face and then this 4D cast oh, yeah, okay. comes out and they wow. make it on okay. your face. So they make six masks for you and you have your two favourites throughout the 12 months of a run because it just it's a nice pair of shoes it just sits on so yes the first time it got onto me I was like wow because there's such uh, there's prosthetics underneath your face you're in the chair for two hours getting all that stuff on and then they pop the mask on I've ne- I've done I've been lucky to do a few characters but a lot of people and actors I'll work with they go I need to get into the costume before I feel the character oh. and I've never been You've like never that never felt like that never that, been like that, that. Um... until Phantom oh because when you're doing a tech rehearsal and you're in your shorts and flip-flops and t-shirt. I was like, I need to feel sexy. Fan- yeah, I need fantomy. to feel phantomy. Well, or menacing and creepy. Menacing and you creepy. You say sexy, but I mean, I've seen phantom in the opera. It's, 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 <laughs> I, play, I played it sexy. He's a creep looking through a two-way mirror. Let's face it. I mean, he... 100%. How he has to be cancelled. 100%. <laughs> Cancel the phantom. We, we always <laughs> talked about Did this. You? We were teching the mirror. And I was like, is this weird to anyone else? Like, yes. I'm just standing watching her we, sing. We seem to just constantly roll with it, going, oh, there's the phantom looking through a two-way mirror. Wait a minute. Absolutely. You yeah. weirdo. Come down to my lair. I've got a boat. <laughs> I'll sing you a few tunes on the organ. You'll love it. Come on, Christine, we can do this. Christine, yeah, bring the mace. Um. <laughs> That's Killian Donnelly on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Morning Ireland, a plea for caution from Water Safety Ireland. Water Safety Ireland is appealing to the public for caution in the water around the country and this as a result of figures for last year showing that 85 people died from drowning which was five more people than lost in the water compared to 2021. So let's talk about this now with Roger Sweeney who's Deputy Chief of Water Safety Ireland. Good morning Roger Sweeney. Well on you. Beautiful morning. Absolutely. And, you know, a morning when, you know, so many people are glad to be alive, looking at the beautiful scenery around us, the waters. But 85 drownings last year. You're renewing an appeal for caution from the public. Absolutely. Especially, I think, at this time of the year, on yeah, most people haven't, most people haven't dipped a toe in the water yet this summer. A lot of people have. They've enjoyed well, Mary has. I weather. haven't yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Anya, you're representative of most of the population, actually, at the moment. And in many ways, the risks are greater at this time of year because of that, because our air temperatures are warm. Everybody's talking about it, but the water is still quite cool. And for a lot of people, parents and children alike, um, they're coming out of environments over the winter where they're swimming in swimming pools that have temperatures in the high 20s and they might feel confident as uh, swimming pool uh, environments, uh, you know, when they're swimming laps. That totally changes when you get out into open water environments, you know. So um, we want people to remember that the water at the moment is about 13 degrees. It might be 29 degrees in your swimming pool. So it's still cool and we need those warm muscles in our arms and legs to swim and to get back to safety. So I think people just need to reflect on that, that, you mm-hmm. know, it is exciting to get into the water, but just remember that um, you're when you're in an open water environment, there are far more risks. And when we reflect on those drownings, and indeed over the last five years, um, because drowning accounted for nearly half, 40%, of all road and water deaths 
combined in the last five years. So it is a significant issue. And I think many of the causes um, tell a story because overall, I think the most common factor is that people get into difficulty when they overestimate their ability and they underestimate the risks. That's really interesting, actually, what you're saying, because, I mean, in many ways, people who are scared of the cold and scared of being out of their depths, like very much me, uh, will be very, very cautious around water usually. But what you're saying is people who may have confidence in their abilities in the water shouldn't overestimate their ability, especially in cold water or about riptides and so on. Is that right? Yes, Anya, absolutely. And it's that overestimating of one's ability that gets into difficulty. And it's a good point that you mentioned in terms of the rip currents because that's actually the most significant reason that people get into difficulty. Um, And um, if people understood just some basic things about these rip currents, because we have instances every weekend now where people are arriving with families to beaches, they look along the length of a beach and they might see an area that doesn't seem to have as many waves um, coming, breaking on shore. And there's a tendency to go towards that area that seems to look, uh, you know, a little calmer, might be a little choppy, but certainly less wave action. But what's happening there is the waves are created, of course, because they're coming in over elevated sandbanks in the first place. They're breaking on shore, but then the water needs to find a way to get back out. And what it's done is it's carved a little channel in the sandbank and that water is heading out through that narrow current and that narrow channel. So if people just remember, if they swim within their depth and stay within their depth, there's a chance that they won't get into that difficulty. However, if they still get caught in a rip current, and you can still get caught in a rip current in that situation, first of all, try to relax. Very easy to say on radio. But if you just, if you understand what's happening, you can get out of difficulty. And that's basically, this, this channel is quite narrow. Okay, it can be as narrow as the road that you might drive on. So basically what you, you'll end up doing, instead of fighting it, because even the strongest swimmers find it nearly impossible actually to swim against it and back to shore, just simply swim sideways. Just go sideways parallel to shore. Just for a short distance, mm-hmm. you'll soon find that you'll be able to swim at an angle and get back to shore. So these are the things, as we say, so different to swimming in a swimming pool, these open water environments. And of course then, the inflatable toys are a big no-no. If you have them, Leave them at home. Don't bring them to the beach this summer. The lifeguards are killed telling people to take them out of the water because they are constantly being swept out by even the slightest current, the slightest breeze. And we've had instances in the past where adults then try to go out and get the child back. So these are the basics, Anya, the basics. And a final question for the people in boats, for the people going fishing. Well, certainly... um, you don't need to be out in a boat to wear a life jacket, which sounds like a bit of an eyebrow raiser, but really we've had drownings in the past where people are angling even from shore and get into difficulty when they slip in, when they're fishing, catch a fish and so or on. Or even freak so, waves. And- absolutely, absolutely. So if you are angling, if your children are angling beside you, um, wear that life jacket on shore when you're close to the water and then when you are boating, wear the, wear the life jacket. But also remember that the life jacket should have a crotch strap as well. It goes around from the back of the life jacket on you to the front, it clips on. If people think of a life jacket like a parachute, you know, you'll go under the water if that life jacket is too big and if it doesn't have the crotch strap. You need to have the crotch strap so to make sure that it, that it fits correctly so that you stay afloat along with your life jacket. Roger Sweeney of Water Safety Ireland on Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, Brian O'Connell was reporting on a business in Cork twice targeted by the same armed robber. Well, I met with uh, Ed Fitzgerald. He runs a third generation shop and newsagent in Cork City Centre. This business is in the family since 1939. So up until recently, Claire, in all that time, the shop had only experienced one significant robbery. This was by an armed male and it was back in 2015. Ed takes up the story. So back in 2015, uh, one of our staff members was here. So a male came in um, and produced an implement, I believe it was a syringe, um, and demanded the contents of the till. Um, They cleared the till. They were in and out in under a minute, I guess. Frightening, I'd imagine, for your employee. Absolutely. It's very traumatic when, when you, you know, you're just going about your day and some, something so, so random like this happens. It it's, it's really is the stuff of movies, you know. And this was the first armed robbery, you think, in the history of the Oh, yeah. The yeah, yeah, in the history of the shop. Yeah, yeah. As I say, we're here since 1939, and this is the first time something like that was the first time something like that had ever happened. There's the financial loss, but there's also the loss of your security, the feeling that you've been invaded. Big time. It puts you on edge, whereas you're quite comfortable knowing, you know, 95% of, of your regular customers and having the chats and having the banter and stuff. I mean, straight away, we had to put in massive security measures, you know. I can see sitting here, we're looking at CCTV. There's multiple cameras, obviously. 14 cameras around the shop. We're, we're, there's three of us on at any one time. So that's 2015. Were you happy enough with, um, with how justice played out in that circumstance? Was that person convicted? They were. Um, I couldn't praise the guards enough at the time, and they actually had the person about a week later, I think, because they were aware of the same perpetrator. He had done. T- he t- he robbed two other shops within, I think, about a forty-eight hour period of ours. So that was a fairly harrowing experience for his staff. And I know, Brian, that the story doesn't end there, but you're going to tell us about Ed's own journey to try and make some sense of this. Yeah, having left school after his leaving cert and he went straight into the family business, as often happens. He he really did get to see all sorts of life and meet a huge cross-section society at the shop counter. But then he found his way back to education later in life. In life he did a night course and then he began a course in social science in UCC. Some of the course models there looked at reoffending and looked at why reoffending happens and his journey to understanding some of the reasons behind crime actually began as a volunteer over a decade ago as he told me. I went working as a volunteer with um, a homeless NGO in the city for about four and a half years you know um, and realising that there's there's a lot to this um, so I returned to UCC and then that led into year two of a degree in social science um, which, and again, the irony of all this, I was actually doing a piece in criminology in, in about recidivism in around the time that this next incident happened, which, um, which is quite interesting. And we'll get to that. But what did studying social science, what did it highlight or illuminate for you? The, the, the direction we're, we're, we're putting our resources as a state the cost of, of housing a normal prisoner, that's without the, the extra securities and the likes of Port Leash, it's €80,000 per annum. I do firmly believe that we're, we're, we're not treating people properly. Why are these people self-medicating with IV drugs on our streets, you know? Training and mental health, that's where resources should be top-heavy. Take me back to, to a year ago. What happened? Um, yeah, again, there was a single staff member on... On duty, it was it was about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. As it went, I was between lectures, and it was just on my way back towards the shop. Um, so you're up in UCC studying social science. Yep. Criminology. Yeah. Recidivism. Absolutely. 
and you get a call? I get a call that the shop had been robbed again. Again, the person was armed. Yeah, they produced um, um, a knife, I believe, this time. Um, and in fairness, within about a week, they had the person. And again, there's more to the story. Seven years later, as he said, they're robbed again at the shop. And the Gardaí, Brian, have some information for Ed. About a week after the shop was targeted in that incident uh, by an armed robber, he got a phone call from investigating Gardaí. Just to say that it's the exact same person who robbed the shop seven years previous who had been through the criminal justice system, who had been incarcerated at that time because, again, they'd robbed a couple of shops seven years ago. And you'd done this body of work and this study in the meantime. So did it change how you felt about it? I'd imagine there was anger because, obviously, it's your, Absolutely. It's your business. They cleaned out my till again, yeah. do you know? It took me a hell of a long time to, to bring that back. So, yeah, there is anger, but, I mean, I don't think anger is the solution here. These people have been, in most cases, traumatised and come from a traumatised background. And that's what we're dealing again. And I think an example is, is case in point of, of a chap who's been through the system. is back out seven years later. is still committing criminality in, in the form of robbing my shop, you know. We, we work very hard here. Do you know, we've worked hard always for everything we've ever got. Um, but isn't the irony in a way that he'll probably get the resources in prison now that he couldn't get in the community? Absolutely. That's it. We, it, it's almost too late when, when you're looking at someone in an in incarceration scenario. I mean, you're, you're looking at a, approximately a one in two chance of recidivism. That, that's a broken system. Ed Fitzgerald talking to Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, Catherine Thomas was in studio with a whole lot of critters and their guardian, Collie Ennis. Now, you may have noticed more insects flying around over the past month during this hot spell, but have you spotted any cane toads, scorpions, salamanders? Well, Collie Ennis, research associate in zoology at TCD and host of the Critter Shed podcast is with me. And he has all three of those things, a menagerie of fantastic creatures. How are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm very well. Good, good. Uh, happy Friday, I think. I think. I'm looking <laughs> so at those far. boxes. And last week we had five big, huge Irish wolfhounds in here that took up the whole studio. And I think I was happier then than I am now. <laughs> But uh, anyway, no, they're they're contained. They're contained and they're quite small and they're they're very well behaved. They're very well me. behaved, and it's just I have a fear like frogs and toads. I don't know what it is. Snakes, spiders, scorpions, grand, mm. but like it's the the froggy toady. Everybody has one. Yeah, everybody that's has mine. some animal that kind of just creeps them out. My yeah. wife is slugs. Okay, so okay. Well, you're going to the Kaleidoscope Festival at Rusborough House, which is the family festival in Blessington County, Wicklow, on the 30th of June, with the intention, I suppose, of trying to dispel a lot of that because a lot of, a lot of kids going to be there. And ki- look, some kids love, most kids actually, oh, don't kids they? Love, yeah, love that's like, how I started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to be bringing all these little critters I with am, you. I am, yeah. And I think the idea is when we show all these wonderful animals, we get kids interested, sparks an interest, more so than if you just brought a ladybird or something small. But in getting them interested in the more exotic stuff, you kind of build that passion for conservation in their garden, getting an interest in flipping logs and looking for slugs and snails and you know, it, it's that's the idea behind the whole thing. And I think the narrative has kind of changed. Like I see my little one now if there's ants or flies in the house, you know, and I'd be sorry to say now, but I'd be <laughs> lashing them with the tea towel, you know, whereas she'd be, you know, try, with the piece of paper trying yeah, to yeah. out the door. People are a lot more conscious now of kind of looking after the, the, the creepy crawlies and the lesser loved creatures of the world and 
yeah, because we know now how important they are. Um, so just before we get into them, um, because I know I mentioned like lots of insects, are we seeing more than normal de- because of the weather? Yeah, it's perfect insect weather. It's very warm, as we've noticed. Yeah. And it's very muggy. And we're getting kind of spells of rain in between, which is perfect for insects. And a lot of people's gardens are literally buzzing, <laughs> for want of a better yeah. word, with, with all sorts of pollinators and and, and bees and um wasps and all those great creatures that we need. Lots of beetles around as well. So it's perfect conditions for, for inverts. If you notice on your car, a lot of people have been commenting on this and asked me questions about it. They're starting to see bug splatter on the front of their cars, which kind of had disappeared for a couple of years. Yeah. So that's a really good sign of a healthy ecosystem. It's not great for your car, obviously, because you have to wash it down. But that was a big thing back when we were kids in the 80s. Your dad would be out scrubbing the car after Every any day. country yeah, drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of went away for a while because insect numbers seem to have dropped down. It's good to see it back. OK, that is good news. You know, it's very rare we're yeah. hearing good news, you good know, news about our you climate and car. our culture and all that. Um, are we seeing anything really big or unusual? You know, because everyone's talking about the temperatures being higher here. Mm-hmm. So are we getting any weird and wonderful stuff from the continent that's flying up? Well, over the last 20 years, we've gotten some beautiful big dragonflies coming in, like the emperor dragonfly, which moved up from the uh, Mediterranean up across the UK and you can actually track it year on year with all the data that people were um, bringing in and, and now it's it's well established and flying up and down the canals of Ireland and Dublin and it's it's uh, it's doing very well here and that's a kind of a trend if we if we continue to stay warm for longer periods mm. that's a trend that's going to continue you're going to have animals because especially invertebrates especially bugs very good at stowing away or creeping away into our goods and services that come into the country mm. two of them get out they do what they do and then you have a whole population Who's this now? That's our cane toad So this toad. is a cane toad <gasps> Yes and yeah. if you've ever been to Australia you probably would have seen cane toads because they've basically taken over the country there they were originally from South America and they were introduced to Australia around 1922. Eat the cane, the beetle that was eating the sugar cane. Mm. But they didn't eat the beetle. They had everything else. Everything else. And yeah. nothing could eat them because they are highly toxic. And any animal that eats them ends up dying. So they've really, really uh, decimated a lot of And the it's wildlife. not their bellies. It's sure it's, it's not. It's their back. It's, it's their, their toxic back. on it's their back. Lumps on the side of their head and on their back. They have the toxins there. Now, there's been a. Uh, a lot of good news lately about cane toads. Um, naturally, crows and magpies in Australia, very clever animals, clever birds. They've learned that if they flip them over, they can eat them from the bottom up. Wow. So that's fantastic. Okay, okay. Collie Ennis with Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And on today with Claire Byrne, Boris Johnson, his resignation as an MP and that damning report. Next Monday, the House of Commons will vote on whether or not to accept a damning report which found that Boris Johnson deliberately misled Parliament about pandemic rule breaking at Downing Street. The former British Prime Minister could have faced a 90 day suspension and a by-election had he not resigned his Uxbridge seat before the Privileges Committee report was published. And responding to that report, Boris Johnson declared it to be the final knife thrust in a protracted political assassination. So what next for the man who hasn't lost an election in over 25 years? Well, Will Walden is former chief counsel and communications director for Boris Johnson and he joins me now. Will, thank you for joining us. What do you think that uh, the answer to that question is? What will he do now, given his response to this report? 
uh, uh, morning, Claire. Um, what he'll do is what he's always done, which is to sort of shout about Trumpian injustice. Uh, I, I think the, the, you had it right. The, the report is damning, and I think it's also ruinous politically for him. I, th- I think a comeback politically is, is almost impossible now. Uh, but we understand this morning that he's signed a deal with the Daily Mail and he'll become a columnist, and I think he'll be a huge thorn in the side of, of Rishi Sunak, uh, and he'll com- complain constantly about the injustice or sp- perceived injustice that, 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 that he feels has happened. But the truth is, when, when he saw this report last week, he got precise of it. Um, I suspect that the reason that he's run for the hills is that he knew it was curtains. And doing so allows him to shout about this injustice, to continue to shout about it, to hold tight to his own version of the truth. And, and that version of the truth is essentially, it's not me, Gov, it's you, Gov. I've done nothing wrong. I was hard done by. This is a total sham. And it's the public, not Parliament, that should judge me. But the problem is in saying that, he's actually proving his critics right. You mentioned that, you know, this by-election in Uxbridge, he's actually ducking democracy and accountability by resigning so he doesn't have to face that by-election. So he's taking away the public's right to judge him, the very public that he said should be judging him. And truthfully, it's classic Boris. It's all very deliberate. He would have lost that by-election, and surveys here in the UK um, done last night by YouGov, the polling company, suggest that 69% agree with the findings of the committee, that he knowingly misled Parliament, and 68% thought the punishment was about right or not harsh enough. In fact, 45% of people think it's not harsh enough. And that's not a winning position with voters. So what you have to understand here is, you know, why has he then gone? He's gone because if Sunak loses the next election, Johnson wants to still be able to say, see, if you'd stuck with me, I would have won the general election. I'm an election winner. Like you said, Claire, it's 25 years since the voters of Cluid South rejected him. And that's the only time, 1997, that he's ever lost an election. And he's now able to say, you know, I've never lost an election. Now, it's hokum because he would have lost the election, but it's classic Boris. And there's two important points to to make beyond that. In a sense, this report matters not a jot. Whether you think it's fair on him or it's appalling or you're somewhere in the middle, Boris Johnson willingly submitted himself to the process. Bill Walden from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it from Playback Daily. Thanks for your company through the year. We won't be here with you for the summer months. So from myself, Carol Moran and the rest of the Playback Daily team, enjoy your summer and mind yourself till next week.